We will read, uh, as I have promised week in and week out, uh, beginning in verse 1. Please stand, if you're able, uh, as we read God's Word together. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray. Uh, We pray, O Holy Spirit, that you would teach us. Uh, Take this, your word, and drive it deep into our hearts that we might respond uh, in faith, in gratitude, and in joyful obedience to the honor and glory of our Savior, in whose name we pray, amen. You may be seated. Uh, They say that one of the the signs, one of the markers of living in a post-Christian world Um, is uh, the idea that it becomes really no longer beneficial to be a member of a local church. Um, And you can see this play out. You've you've known people throughout your years, perhaps you have even been such a person who would join a church just because we're in the South and that's what you do. And quite honestly, I'm a doctor and I kind of need to be around more people where I might be able to drum up some business that sort of thing. That's the, the world we have lived in. Um, and Athens may be a little bit of a bubble still. Uh, but it's sort of this general notion that the mark of a post-Christian culture, a post-Christian society is that it's really no longer beneficial to be a member of a local church. And I think that's the world we live in. And yet, interestingly enough, If you were to go around and sort of take a poll of prevailing worldview matters. And we've seen this in conversations with teenagers in our home over the last several years. The general sense is that people should be allowed to do whatever they want to do as long as they don't hurt anybody else. Now, there's a lot of questions you start asking at that point, right? But the reality is, if you were to do one of those 24-hour news shows, you know, Fox News, MSNBC approval rating polls um, for the Ten Commandments, my guess is the Sixth Commandment would be one of maybe two or three with a greater than 50% approval rating. 
There would be a lot of commandments that most of the world around us would go, I don't even know what that means. I don't know. Uh, But for some reason, this one seems to still hold some sort of sway in our world. It's probably one of two or three that would have a a greater than 50% approval rating. I think a lot of the reason is because we take the commandment at merely face value, at merely word level, don't murder. Like, that seems like a pretty low bar. That seems like a pretty easy task to accomplish. That seems like something I think I can do. In fact, even at the ripe old age of my age, I've never actually killed anybody. And so if we take it at face value, at sort of word level, it sounds easy enough to do. If we were to understand the implications of the sixth commandment, the approval rating would plummet. When we come to the commandment itself, you shall not murder. It's four words in English. It's two in Hebrew. Do you want to learn Hebrew? Lo tirtzach. That's all the Hebrew it is. And like I told you before, if you, if you, could, you don't have to read Hebrew. All you have to be able to do, if you can see pictures, if you can see images, you can look through Exodus 20 and see all of them, not all but two, all but four and five, beginning with the exact same word, not. And you can, you can watch it go down the page. And so literally it's two words, no, you shall kill. And at its simplest, that seems easy enough to understand. And that's when questions start. Well, hold on a second. The word is kill. Does that mean no war? Does that mean the sixth commandment says we can't go to war ever? Does the sixth commandment mean you can't go hunting? And bring home venison for dinner. Right? If you just take the word, you shall not kill. Now, the ESV uses murder to make that distinction. uh, But you'll find other English translations that simply say, you shall not kill. Maybe PETA comes along. People for the ethical treatment of animals. Maybe they come along and go, but look, the sixth commandment says, you can't hunt. And so when the Bible says you shall not kill, you shall not murder, what exactly does it mean? What is the commandment? Well, the reason the ESV uses murder is because the word ratzach is only ever used of killing people. Hebrew actually has like eight verbs for kill. And never does this verb apply to animals. Never does this verb, never is this verb used in times of war. Never is this verb used in terms of capital punishment. It is only ever used in the Bible when talking about killing someone unjustly, either intentionally or accidentally. It doesn't even require it. It doesn't mandate that it has to be intentional, premeditated murder. Um, Numbers 35 is a whole chunk of a chapter that tells you what to do. Well, that tells the Israelites what to do if you accidentally killed somebody. 
if you were out chopping wood and the axe head, the head came off of your axe and it flew through the air and it hit someone in the head and it killed them. And so Israel had these cities of refuge set up where you could go and be guaranteed a fair and safe trial there. It was accidental. It wasn't intentional. It wasn't your plan. You may not have even known they were behind you. But it's still the same verb that's used here in verse 13. But when it comes to sacrificing animals for sin, when it comes to describing war, the Bible always uses a different word. So God's making a distinction, not just here, but throughout the Old Testament, between unjust killing and hunting or going to war. It's making a distinction between the various ways we might kill someone. Of course, we don't we, we know we don't need to know Hebrew for that. Like you don't need to have gone to seminary and learned Hebrew to pick that up in the Old Testament, because clearly God commanded Israel when they got to the promised land. This this these people right here gathered still. But it feels like such a long time when you stop and preach one commandment a week. And you go six. It feels like such a long time for us. Uh, In the grand scheme of things, um, the Israelites are still gathered around around Mount Sinai. They're still there and they're listening. And all these you verbs are singular verbs. And so they're hearing God say to them, I personally am told not to kill someone. It's not like I can pass this off on someone else. And they spend... Less than a year there. And when they move, they're going to head into the promised land. And they're supposed to utterly destroy the Amorites, the Hittites, all the other ites that are hanging out in Canaan, that are living in Canaan. And since God can't command that which is inherently sinful, that destruction is not a violation of the sixth commandment. For that matter, we could look at Romans 13 and and see that the government is given the sword, the power of the sword. The church doesn't have the sword. The kingdom, the earthly kingdom, the civil magistrate is given the power of the sword to protect the righteous and to punish the guilty. Why do they need a sword at all? If any form of killing at all, whether capital punishment or war, is a violation of God's command. You can read through the Old Testament and see animals sacrificed for sin. And all of those rams that are killed, that are slaughtered, they point us to the Messiah because He is going to shed His blood. And we also know that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. And so when we're told not to kill, none of those things are included in its intent, in its scope. The point is that the the Sixth Commandment doesn't forbid every form of killing 
the focus here is on killing another human illegitimately. Now, I want you in your in your post-Christian world, I want you to go ask the people you know who have this, this worldview. You should be allowed to do whatever you want to do as long as you don't hurt anybody else. Ask them why. Your first question should be, why? Why am I not allowed to hurt anyone else? And inevitably, their answer is going to be, well, just because you can't. It's wrong. It's bad. Okay, that's, that's not an answer, right? They happen to be right. They just don't know why they're right. They don't have a, a basis, a foundation on which to say you can't do that. But the Bible actually gives us very clear reasons why we're not to kill other people. Turn with me to Psalm uh, 139. In Psalm 139, we get a part of an answer to why killing other humans is wrong. Psalm 139 is familiar to you, I'm sure. Um, you at least know uh, the first and the last two. The first verse and the last two Verses are probably familiar. David is basically saying, look, God, I can climb to the highest mountain and I can't get away from you. I could drop to the deepest depths and those are not too far for you. You can reach, you can find you're there. No matter how dark it is, no matter how light it is, you're always there. That's sort of the context. In fact, verse 13, for you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. Before any human being laid eyes on David, God not only had seen him, but was actually putting him together in his mom's womb, in the darkest of places, in the privatest of the most private of places known to man, a place who, you know, I mean, it's, it's in my lifetime that that we've been able to have ultrasounds and actually see children. Nobody could see David. God not only saw him, but he was actually at work putting him together. The point is, who we are is who we are by God's own design and creation. This right here is sort of step one as to why abortion is a sin. Because who we are is, is at the very least put together by God himself. Remember John the Baptist? In utero? When Mary, pregnant with Jesus, came into the room, John the Baptist, still in Elizabeth's womb, is turning flips. We're told throughout Scripture that children are a gift from the Lord. God gave Samuel to Hannah. He is at work with Jacob and Esau while they're still in Rebekah's belly. And part of the point here is that God is putting us together. He's forming us before any human eyes will, lay, uh, will see us in any way at all. 
And so it's for that reason that abortion counts as sin. It's for that reason that, that killing unborn children is a violation of the sixth commandment. Turn to Genesis chapter 9. In Genesis 9, we get a um, sort of a, a twofer. In Genesis 9, after, um, after the flood, uh, Noah and his family have come off the ark. God bless Noah and his sons. Verse 1, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. Restating what he had told Adam and Eve in the garden. Um, into your hand. Verse 3, every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life. Uh, that is its blood and for your so there's there you can hunt at this point noah can now eat deer okay verse 5 for your lifeblood i will require a reckoning from every beast i will require it and from man from his fellow man i will require a reckoning for the life of man whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed for god made man in his own image in the same breath, you get, you get license to hunt, but then you also get the foundation for capital punishment. That, that whoever kills another person, that person is to be put to death. Why? Did you hear the reason? Because man bears God's image. In fact, you see that most clearly in Genesis chapter 1. God makes man, verse 26, let us make man in our image after our likeness. You know what separates Nike from Hanes? You know, the biggest difference between Nike and Hanes is that little swoosh. It's not a check mark, it's a swoosh. It's the Nike swoosh. That's what makes one pair of shorts or one t-shirt twice as much as another. It's because it bears this, this mark. You can go to any sporting goods store in all the world and pick up a baseball for next to nothing. If you find a baseball with Babe Ruth's signature on it, all of a sudden it's worth something. You bear God's swoosh. You bear God's signature. You bear God's mark. You're created in His image. And because of that, an attack on the image is an attack on the one represented by that image. What separates us from all the rest of creation is that mark, that image, that imprint. On us. When it comes to understanding the sixth commandment, what's forbidden? Well, for starters, any malicious, intentional destruction of human life, murder, abortion, euthanasia, 
If babies are put together by God and they bear God's image, then abortion is a violation of the sixth commandment. But it also covers other sort of accidental manslaughter situations. And you can read the rest of Exodus and see where people are held responsible for a death because their ox got out and gored someone else. And so there's this this guarding of life. But it also includes anyone who is complicit in unlawful... Who killed Uriah the Hittite? The first word in your mind is David. He wasn't there. You don't have any idea who actually pulled the trigger and shot Uriah the Hittite. Okay. Humor me. It's anachronistic. I know. You don't know who held the bow that shot Uriah, who held the sword that stabbed Uriah. You don't know. But who killed Uriah? David did. Hundreds of miles away. Because he created a scenario in which Uriah was guaranteed to die. Pilate. I find no guilt in this man. Washes his hands. And yet, the Apostles' Creed says, suffered under Pontius Pilate. So, even being complicit in uh, to the murder uh, of others makes us guilty. But I want you to notice the heart of this commandment. Because when the Bible summarizes the Ten Commandments, you see this in Deuteronomy and you see this in Matthew 22 uh, from Jesus himself. When, when you summarize the Ten Commandments, you know this. The summary is, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's our sort of understanding of the two tables of the law. The first four commandments deal with our relationship to God. Commandments 5 to 10 uh, deal with our relationship with other people. 5 makes really the perfect transition because it's both horizontal and vertical uh, at the same time. And so... At the heart of the commandment is love. So then you have to ask, what's love got to do with it? Because at the very least, if I tell my wife, I love you. Well, how in the world is she going to know? that? Well, I mean, I haven't actually killed her. She's here and she's breathing. So that's perfectly right. That's if meeting the language of the commandment is all that's required then I'm not really keeping the commandment. Because simply not putting a sword to someone's throat is really not much of a bar to keep. Did you notice, um, did you notice our New Testament reading just a few minutes ago in Matthew 5? You can turn there or you can grab your bullet and it's printed there. But in Matthew chapter 5, we read... Um, uh, from the Sermon on the Mount and just a few minutes ago. And notice what Jesus does with the commandment. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. Whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother 
Why is anger on par with murder? Because anger is pre-murder. You, you don't murder for nothing. You murder because you suddenly lash out in anger and get, get furious with someone and you take it out on them. Or maybe not suddenly, but you're angry with them and you let it build and grow and fester until you finally lash out at them and kill them. Anger is merely the, the, the heart killing someone before the hands have a chance to. That's why in, it's in this context that Jesus says, if you're angry with someone, you're guilty. Now, if you're offering something to God and you know that your brother has something against you, go and be healed in that relationship first. God doesn't want your offering if you are harboring anger against your brother or your sister in Christ. That offering is merely external. If it's not rooted in love for your neighbors, it's merely an offering of the lips and the hands, not really an offering of the heart. Think of all the ways we dismiss. I mean, I, I, I have I just have a temper. That's how I am. I'm redheaded. And so I'm allowed to have a temper because I have red hair. And so that's my excuse. Or I was raised with a, an angry family and that was just how we communicated. And so I lash out with ang in anger. It's really not that big a deal. That's just part of who I am. And the Bible says, no, that's sin. That's a violation of God's will. We need to learn to call it what it is. And so Jesus moves the commandment from our hands and feet to our hearts. When you grit your teeth and growl and stomp your foot and squeeze your hands and imagine their necks in your hands when you do it, you're killing someone in your heart before your hands have a chance to. So that's why he then goes on to say, seek peace with your brothers before you bring your offering to God. Turn to 1 John chapter 3. Let me show you another um, very clear um, passage that shows us uh, murder in the heart before there's murder in the hands. 1 John chapter 3. Verse 15, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. John outright equates hatred with murder. If we hate someone, we are killing them. In Galatians 5, you get the same sort of thing. The deeds of the flesh. Uh, in, in the deeds of the flesh... You'll notice um, Galatians 5.19. Now the works of the flesh are evident. And then you get this long list. What's interesting is that murder isn't on the list. I find that curious. Like I would expect if you're going to see a list of the deeds of the flesh, I would expect the Ten Commandments to have an appearance in that list. And there's no mention of murder in Galatians 5. 
Well, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, divisions. Those are all pre-murder. And so he doesn't have to get all the way to murder because he can deal with the matters of the heart and see that we are guilty. In other words, the heart of the commandment is aimed at our hearts, not merely our hands. But I want to show you one more thing. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 22. Because there is a, a, a curious, every now and then you're reading through your Bible, you're doing your read through the Bible in a year thing. You're working your way through your Bible reading plan. And every now and then you find verses that make you scratch your head. And you don't really know what to do with it. And so a lot of times what you do is you just go, huh, and you move on. But notice Deuteronomy chapter 22. Notice verse 8. When you build a new house, you shall make a parapet for your roof. How many of you have parapets on your roof? How many of you know what a parapet is? It's a fence. It's a little low wall around the edge of your roof. So that when you're up on your roof sleeping, taking a nap, because I'm sure you do this. There's a fence there so that if you fall asleep and roll over in the night, you won't fall off the roof. Now, their roofs were not pitched quite like ours. Well, if you don't have a parapet on your roof, are you violating this command? Because this right here is an application of the sixth commandment. This is a, a, a verse that says you need to care about the potential danger your possessions might cause to other people. This is why if you have a pool, you have a fence around it. You don't want your neighbor's child wandering into your pool. It's an opportunity to, to put up some safety features to protect the lives of other people. Do you notice how the commandment keeps moving? What was as simple as I've never actually stabbed anybody to death has now become... Do I love people and do I love them enough to do stuff with my stuff that makes sure other people aren't in danger because of my carelessness? And do I have a fence around my pool? Do I have a, a fence around um, the, the utility stuff around town? Anytime you, you get to some big major electrical junction box, there's a fence around it to protect you from... or some child or some animal from wandering into it and, and being injured. In other words, the sixth commandment, it's, it tells us not just, it's not enough simply not to kill people. We should actually seek their good. We should act, actually seek their health and protection and safety. We should guard against harboring anger in our hearts and seek the good of our neighbor. Let me make just two applications that aren't perhaps quite as obvious as the, the, the standard, the obvious applications sort of made throughout the rest of the sermon. First, consider Jesus. He was ratsocked. 
That sounds actually kind of cool to say now that I say it out loud. He was that, that Hebrew word in, in, in Exodus 20, verse 13, that Hebrew word that, that says don't be. Jesus was unjustly killed so that you wouldn't have to be. Jesus was unjustly killed so that you wouldn't have to be justly killed. You see, our sin deserves death. Our sin, our cosmic treason, the guilt of violating God's will deserves His wrath and curse. Jesus was unjustly killed so that you and I could be set free. And even in that moment, even as He's suffering on the cross, Rather than anger, rather than malice, rather than hatred, rather than I'm going to get you back, Jesus instead says, forgive them, for they know not what they're doing. In other words, Jesus kept the sixth commandment at the most likely place anybody would have violated it. And we would have given him a pass for it. Jesus kept the law because we don't. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they're doing, so that He could be obedient even to the sixth commandment, to the bitter end in our place. Which brings you to the second application. Jesus saves murderers. David's hope was the promised Messiah. Moses, who's on the mountain getting this from God, who's going to carry these very stones down the mountain, which are etched by the finger of God, Exodus 31 tells us. Moses is a murderer. Remember way back in Egypt when he just out of anger killed an Egyptian who was mistreating an Israelite and then buried him to cover it up? Moses is a murderer. Paul, when Stephen was stoned, Paul is standing, he's the coat check guy. Right? He was the guy, you brought him your coat, he gave you your little check card so that you could come back and get it. When you were offended, because you can't, you can't throw stones very well when you've got your all bundled up in your robe. So, Paul, you hang on to this. Here are your number eight. All right, it's cool. When I come back, I want robe number eight. I'll put this in my pocket while I go stone Stephen. And at the beginning of Acts 8, Saul was there giving approval to Stephen's death. This is the guy who went on to write so much of the New Testament and who called himself the chief of sinners. What's his hope? His hope is that Jesus saves murderers. So are you guilty? Okay, maybe you've never actually killed anybody. Maybe you've never had an abortion. Maybe you've never actually been angry with anybody. Maybe you've never lashed out in anger at your brother or your sister or your child or your parent or your cousin, or your next door neighbor. But if you have any of those things, look to Christ. He's in the business of saving sinners, even murderers.
Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are about the work of redeeming people. Unworthy in and of themselves, ourselves, guilty as we are of of cosmic treason, of violating your law in thought, word, and deed, day in and day out. Lord Jesus, we perhaps love anger too much. Perhaps some of us even holding on to it on purpose. Father, we pray that you would root out bitterness and anger and malice and and hatred from our hearts that we might be restored to our brothers and sisters and seek their good, their safety, their health, their protection. And Lord Jesus, we thank you for your faithfulness, your obedience to this commandment in the most trying time possible. That you would seek the good, even of your enemies, of those driving the nails unjustly into your hands and feet while you were hanging on that cross. Would you save us? Would you conform us more and more into the image of Christ? We pray in your holy name. Amen.